I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. For centuries, banking has been a relatively stable legal concept, one referring to the transformation of customer savings deposited at banks into loans. But in the past decade, an explosion of innovation has initiated the unbundling of core operations of banks, with fintech firms aiming to replace slices of the supply chain of lending, custodying, underwriting, and other services normally packaged together. But regulatorily, these institutions look very different from banks and often lack the licenses and operational flexibility and benefits that regulated institutions have had. Now, this has led to calls in some corners of the ecosystem to increase the number and kinds of licenses available to fintechs and in turn enable larger aspirations for cheaper and more inclusive services for the underbanked. Others, however, have criticized anything that could be viewed as a watering down of key protections designed to protect depositors and consumers. Now, this kind of debate can be difficult to track. So to help break it all down, I am pleased to have three renowned thought leaders in the space. Dan Ari, a law professor at Cornell who specializes in financial regulation and risk. Caitlin Long, the CEO of Avanti, a bank launched to serve the digital asset industry. And Michelle Alt, a partner at the New York consulting firm of the Claros Group. Me be the Jericho Turnpike Bandit. Best competition, try to trip my way. I say the song you never heard before. I feed the famine in the mind. So mind your manners, baby. Caitlin, you know, maybe you can take us through the major decisions one makes when it comes to chartering a bank. After all, you've started one yourself. Um, you know, th- there's just a very wide range of options that at least are theoretically on the table, maybe you can break it down for the uninitiated. What are the basic kinds of decisions, the basic forms of charters uh, that are out there and, and, and who regulates them? For bank charters, there are a couple of different buckets. One is, do you need a national charter or do you need a state charter that can operate nationwide? Because we have what's called a two-tier banking system. We have federal charters and we have charters issued by each of the 50 states. Uh, And then the next question is, do you want to become an insured bank and get FDIC insurance? And if so, uh, then do you choose to become a member bank of the Federal Reserve? And so essentially, if you're a a state bank, you're either being regulated at the federal level by the FDIC or by the Federal Reserve itself. Lots of choices. So we have this state and federal line of demarcation, which really hones in on the initial chartering or licensing, and then another supervisory line of demarcation, even at the federal level, as to issues concerning the FDIC and, and perhaps the Fed. Uh, but but it's also, of course, worth adding that there are charters that grant larger wholesale licenses for uh, some banking activities and then special purpose licenses. Uh, could you maybe add a word or two as to what they're supposed to be getting to there? Uh, Well, what's interesting is if we step back, banks are at the pinnacle of the type of financial regulation in the the United States. They have the strictest regulation. Um, If you step back one level beneath that, it's generally speaking trust companies, which can do a lot of the same things banks can do, but don't have to take deposits. Literally, they're not authorized to take deposits. So they have to bank with a bank. Um, And then below that is 
what we call fintech charters. This is typically companies that are regulated by state money transmitter or state consumer lending licenses. Um, and they also have to bank with a bank. So you can see how banks who don't have to bank with a bank uh, are at the top of that pyramid. They get, a, they get the ability to do a lot more things than the other types of charters that give them less flexibility. But um, uh, in exchange for that, they, the banks have a lot more regulation. They are examined annually. They have much higher capital requirements. Uh, and they have a, a number of other compliance requirements that they have to comply with, in part because they do the compliance surveillance work for those other two types of charters, the trust companies and money transmitters that don't have as high a level of supervision. You know, what's really funny is, you know, it doesn't take long to go from zero to 100 when it gets into this uh, kind of conversation. And we're already talking about banking with the bank, where we're using the same words to describe ultimately <laughs> different but overlapping kinds of services. You know, M Michelle, you know, so we've sort of, we've heard this queued up uh, uh, by, by, by Caitlin, but, you know, a lot of your work is advising people as to what kind of charter to take. You know, how do you look at the universe of available options? for financial institutions? And, and what do you view as their, their varying uh, rights and, and, again, trade-offs when it comes to their permitted activities and, and obligations? Okay, so I'll try to be really quick. I break down um, the constellation of charters into those that are subject to the Bank Holding Company Act and those that are not. And for fintechs, this is usually a very important distinction. Most uh, fintech applicants do not want a charter that will subject the broader company to Fed oversight, you know, and that is because the broader company may be engaged in activities, often technology-based, um, that are not permissible for a bank holding company. So it really is just a non-starter for that. So within those, let me just really quickly go uh, through what are exempt charters and what are non-exempt charters. So when we come to the bank, Holding company exempt charters, number one on the hit parade is the industrial loan charter, the ILC, also called industrial bank. This is by far the most controversial charter. Um, an ILC uh, is regulated both by the issuing state. There are about six states that provide an ILC charter, Utah being the most notable among them. And they are regulated by the FDIC as well. An ILC is a great charter to have because you can pretty much do whatever a full service bank does through an ILC with certain limited exceptions that, you know, frankly, you can work around pretty easily. Um, this is a very controversial charter. Um, opponents um, view this as a loophole in the, the Bank Holding Company Act. There are frequently calls to close this loophole legislatively. Um, for a long time, there were just there was a moratorium post out Frank on ILCs. Um, that moratorium was lifted several years ago, but only a couple have made it through the gate. Um, so the ILC is is first. Then um, national and state trust banks. Um, so a national trust bank is uh, regulated by the OCC, my alma mater. Um, uh, a trust bank can only engage in activities that are permissible under state law for state trust banks. Um, generally, this means there, there's no deposit taking, there's no lending. So it's, it's a very different model, um, Chris, than your intro at the top of the discussion about what it means to be a bank. That said, this is a very old charter type. 
as a very traditional established uh, charter type to provide fiduciary services to customers. Recently, as we all know, the OCC has granted several charters conditional approval uh, to several uh, crypto-focused trust banks. That's why they're controversial right now. Not the charter as a whole, but this particular grant of them. Uh, Similar, there are uh, state-regulated trust banks. Um, uh, Some of the states, like New York, very active in the trust charter space um, for crypto companies. So the New York Limited Purpose Trust a charter is an example. Finally, there are in the exempt uh, category, there are uninsured national banks. Um, there is ample historical precedent for an uninsured national bank. And that is because the National Bank Act proceeds by several decades, um, the Federal Deposit Insurance Act, So when the National Bank Act was created around the Civil War, there was no such thing as deposit insurance. So all national banks were uninsured, right? So there is historical precedent for this. We could go round and round and nobody wants to hear all of us lawyers argue about this, right? Um, And we'll leave it to the courts. Uh, But there there have been no recent examples. There is one application pending. Um, and the OCC has entered a stay with the CSBS, the Conference of State Banking Supervisors, over litigation challenging that application. Um, finally, and Caitlin is the best person to talk about this, um, I'm going to include the Wyoming Speedy, the Special Purpose Deposit um, uh, Institution, in the BHCA exempt list. Although a Speedy can accept deposits, they're not. Um, in the business of accepting demand deposits from consumers. Uh, Really, the Speedy is envisioned as a uh, crypto asset custodian for the the most part. Other states, though, are getting in the Speedy game, um, Nebraska and Illinois being among them. So that's a space to watch, right? You can apply for a de novo, so a new bank, a de novo application, or you can purchase an existing bank or you can sell yourself to an existing bank and wind up a bank. So that's that's the landscape. So just to sum it up, we have this line of demarcation between national and state banks. And then we have this idea of whether or not you're exempt from Bank Holding Company Act. And uh, there you have ILCs, trust banks, and uninsured national banks, and then the Wyoming Special Purpose Deposit Institution. Uh, And if you want to go through the Bank Holding Company Act, uh, it's useful to just observe that there are a number of ways to do this. Uh, You can sell yourself to an existing bank, uh, you can apply for a de novo license, and you can start one up from scratch, or uh, you can buy a bank. If you can't beat one, buy one. Uh, Dan, given your expertise as we take this wonderful walk down Fintech Alley, uh, as you know, Depending on what kind of license you have, you can have the opportunity to access different kinds of goodies, like access to the U.S. payment system or, or discount window. Uh, to what extent is that important to any kind of financial institution, regardless as to whether or not it's a bank or a fintech? And how do you view the attractiveness and the incentives generated by uh, Fed goodies and, and infrastructures? Yeah, so certainly a lot of the innovation that we're seeing in the fintech world uh, is within the payment space. Uh, And for those actors, the ability to access the rails of uh, the broader payment system may be somewhat important to very important uh, as part of their business models. 
Uh, and here it's important uh, to understand that not all charters were created equal in terms of access to that infrastructure. Uh, so what does that mean? Well, the conventional payment system revolves around three pieces of infrastructure. The one we're all aware of uh, are banks uh, and bank accounts. Uh, but the other two layered on top of it have a complex and intertwined relationship with the conventional banking system. So the first piece of infrastructure are these Fed master accounts uh, that have become increasingly popular uh, in the press um, uh, and starting to get a little more traction, uh, thankfully for people like me, in broader policy debates about how to encourage uh, innovation uh, in uh, the payment system. Those master accounts uh, uh, under the Federal Reserve Act are only available to banks and certain enumerated public sector actors. So the Treasury, for example, the TGA, uh, the Treasury General Account is one of these Fed master accounts. But most of the several thousand accounts, by far and away the largest majority of the several thousand accounts that the Fed holds are for conventional deposit taking banks. So everybody else is looking in through the glass for access to these accounts. And these accounts are great because they represent the final source of settlement in the payment system. But even more than that, they're an operational and legal prerequisite to access the clearing networks uh, that are the real rails uh, of the payment system. So in effect, what you end up with is tiered infrastructure access. You gotta be a bank to get access to a Federal Reserve Master Account. And you have to have a Federal Reserve master account in order to get access to the clearing networks through which the vast majority of retail and wholesale payments flow. So if you're not a bank, you're looking on the outside uh, in. What this means in terms of chartering, uh, ultimately, is that new fintech business models are left with two potentially unpalatable options. The first is to shoehorn themselves into an existing um, uh, bank charter model that theoretically has access to these accounts. Uh, this can be problematic for reasons of poor fit. Many of the business models of these firms don't actually map onto conventional bank regulation particularly well. Uh, and second of all, the Fed has signaled its willingness not to give out um, uh, master accounts to all banks uh, automatically. So looking specifically at things like uh, the narrow bank and some of the marijuana banks that have applied for uh, these master accounts, we've seen the Fed push back. So the Fed's credit is currently going through a process of reworking, uh, uh, perhaps making more transparent the process for granting master account applications, but it's also signaled that it's still just gonna be banks uh, that have uh, eligible uh, or eligibility uh, to open these accounts. The second thing you can do and in what we see largely uh, in practice is new fintech business models partnering with banks uh, in order to have indirect access to these payment rails. And that can be bad news for different stakeholders for a variety of reasons, some of which I suspect we'll talk about. Uh, it's not great to rely on your principal competitors for key infrastructure access uh, from the perspective of the fintechs. Uh, and given uh, the complex uh, uh, interactions, the interconnectedness that this creates, combined with a fragmented US regulatory system, it also creates challenges for understanding where risks reside within uh, the system. So in terms of the chartering debate, as you said, uh, the Fed gets to hand out certain goodies, um, but you have to be wearing a certain costume um, before you go trick-or-treating in order to get those goodies from the Fed. That is fantastic and, and obviously generates an entirely new line of questioning we can follow up on uh, now. Uh, Caitlin, you've been very vocal about uh, how the technology deployed in any context 
actually matters. And, 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 and that crypto specifically uh, creates a kind of settlement cycle that doesn't necessarily map onto the expectations and assumptions grounding parts of sort of the legacy banking system and banking regulation. Maybe you could elaborate on that. Um, what does what does that mean, and, and, and what does it imply in terms of the charter conversation? Sure. Well, one thing we know we needed in the crypto industry is direct access to banking services. There's a lot of settlement risk that exists between traditional U.S. dollar payment systems and crypto. They settle on very different timing cycles and very different finality cycles. Crypto payments cannot be reversed. ACH payments, we now know, thanks to the new rules, can be reversed for up to for fraud by a consumer for up to two years later. Uh, so you can very easily see how these, these systems do not fit well together. They have very different rules. And um, banks are, are, generally speaking, updating their books and records once a day. And so if crypto settles in minutes with irreversibility, you can easily see how a bank could get itself with a big exposure intraday and not even know about it until it settles in its books and records and looks at its reports the next day. Well, that's a big problem. There's real run risk in the system. And the focus uh, on, on, as we were discussing before we started recording the show, is uh, from the BIS capital requirements is on the price volatility of crypto. That's not where the focus needs to be. That's an issue too. But there need to be special rules for how crypto gets settled inside banks, be precisely because of these very different settlement issues. And the traditional payment systems don't need to distinguish between these settlement systems because they're all designed to work together and essentially settle overnight. But that's not the way crypto works. And crypto is a different animal. I said in 2016, and I will repeat it again, crypto is going to take down a GSIB if we don't get this right. And the way to get this right is to segregate all the crypto because it settles on such a different settlement cycle with, with irreversibility and put it in a special purpose charter. And that's the reason why Wyoming created this. Now, that doesn't mean a diversified bank shouldn't get into crypto. They should, but it needs to be in a ring-fenced bankruptcy remote charter so that you don't have the bank run risk leaking into the traditional um, fractional reserve part of the bank. I, I was really surprised when I saw a paper come out over the weekend talking about the different options for stablecoins. Um, in, in, uh, this was written by a gentleman at Yale and, a, and an attorney at the Fed talking about stablecoin options. And one of the, the options being to put it in the insured banking system. And I thought, oh no, that's your, now you've just injected a whole new source of bank run risk into the system. That's absolutely not the way to handle this. It does need to be ring fenced. It does need to be in special purpose charters. Uh, but um, to the points that were already made, in order to get access to the Fed, Ding, 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 ding. You've got to be a depository institution. It's not all types of banks. It's only depository institutions. And what's the definition of a depository institution? It's a company that's authorized by state statute to accept U.S. dollar deposits. There's a very specific, uh, very specific language. In fact, it's to accept U.S. dollar deposits other than trust funds, which itself has a very specific meaning as well. So you've got to actually check the box if the depository institution is authorized by state law to accept deposits in U.S. dollars other than trust funds, then it's eligible to apply for a Federal Reserve Master Account. And that's indeed what we set up in Wyoming. Fascinatingly, um, we, we heard earlier about the Nebraska and Illinois attempts at creating these special purpose charters. Nebraska's is not a depository institution. And even though the um, statute says it's eligible to apply, 
I doubt the Federal Reserve would consider it eligible because it's not a depository institution. Illinois, interestingly, has long had depository trust companies, which confuses things even more because generally speaking, trust companies can't take deposits. But there are some states whose trust companies are authorized uh, by state law to take deposits. Illinois is one. Uh, Northern Trust is domiciled in Illinois, one of the biggest um, tr uh, historical trust companies in the United States. Uh, and so the interesting question with Illinois, whose law is about to be enacted but hasn't, hasn't been enacted yet, the Illinois legislator left it to the Illinois regulator to determine whether that law is available for its depository trust companies or not. So we don't know yet, but I suspect the answer will be yes. In Illinois, the depository trust companies will be depository institutions and therefore el eligible for FedMaster accounts. Michelle, you've heard Caitlin point out the fact that the qualitative features of institutions are important. But maybe you can give us some of your insights as to how important uh, regulatory intensity, uh, maybe? Well, Chris, um, I think it's both. I think the features of the, of the charter matter greatly and the supervision uh, uh, matters quite a bit too. And um, I think you're leading into kind of what are the differences among the regulators type question. Um, so it's a very provocative question to be asked, like compare the regulators, right? And so I'm going to try to stay above the fray here by saying first, that any applicant for a bank charter should prepare one for a lengthy chartering process or change in bank control process. And if they succeed, a very high degree of regulatory scrutiny, doesn't matter what type uh, of charter they're gonna get. Suffice it to say, bank regulation is not for the faint of heart, right? Okay, then I'm gonna stay attempt to stay further above the fray here, Chris, by identifying the, the strengths of each agency. So state regulators, they pride themselves, and justifiably so, on being very in touch with both their banks and their consumers, right? And therefore, they tend to be very responsive to the needs of both constituencies. Um, the federal regulators are very well-resourced. And they're very thorough in their examination and oversight. So some might say that um, you get in a federal regulator, very well-informed, but more intrusive oversight than with the states. Um, then further, and I'll end with my bit with this, is that with respect to the federal banking agencies, it's also important to recognize that they are very different from one another. Um, each has its own culture, and that culture is reflected in the ways that they approach their respective missions, right? So, for example, so the OCC has a very strong law department, which has traditionally had a very dominant role in shaping the agency's policy. So, the focus at the OCC has long been on preserving and enhancing the value of the National Bank Charter. So keenly interested in that. Um, also, the OCC regulates the largest banks in America, so they are very focused on the complexities of these large multinationals. The FDIC, of course, is charged with protecting the deposit insurance fund, right? So, of course, they're more conservative in their mission, right? They are there to protect, not really so much to grant access, right? They are, they are being very careful. Um, also, the FDIC primarily regulates community banks, so that's their focus, not on the large, large banks like OCC. Now, interestingly, um, the Fed, 
right? Everybody's always interested in the Fed. The Fed's policy is shaped primarily through an economy, an economic lens. Amazingly, they employ tens of thousands of economists. People don't realize how big the Fed is. The Fed is big, right? And so they very much uh, at their heart are an agency of economic uh, of, of economists. And of course, they regulate the bank holding companies and have more of an international focus. So, Dan, what do you think about regulatory intensity? This, this issue, is this something you've also observed or are there other salient things, perhaps substantive features of the charters uh, that, 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 that really caught your eye? Yeah, my, my work is kind of less on Michelle's side of things where you're looking at the the resources, quality, and outlook of specific regulators, and more looking at the privileges and constraints of specific charters and whether they make sense, um, right? Um, uh, and a lot of what I do takes a conventional bank charter as sort of the starting point where uh, there are risks associated with the business of banking that over time we've developed a range of regulatory responses to. And we can debate whether they're calibrated correctly, uh, whether, um, uh, you know, uh, they inhibit innovation, inhibit investment, or leave too much systemic risk. But the rationale for these objectives is something that now is relatively well understood in the policy community, definitely in the academic community. And then to take that same logic and see, first of all, whether it applies to new business models um, uh, and new charters, and two, uh, if it does, uh, to compare those charters. Uh, and so really there, I see a lot of uh, uh, complexity. So uh, as you know, Chris, I've sort of, uh, well, not sort of, I suppose, I've dedicated a couple of years of my life to comparing uh, all 50 states' uh, uh, money service businesses laws to see what they said, what they did, what sort of different types of strategies they employed. And not surprisingly, uh, in a federal system that prides itself on experimentation, there's a wide range of different models. Some of them uh, understand uh, that as you loosen constraints around what a firm that accepts quasi-deposits can do with that money, uh, you also want to couple that uh, with regulatory constraints that then protect against the microprudential and consumer protection risks. Others don't. Uh, others uh, will have minuscule capital requirements, limited supervision, uh, but also enable these firms to invest in crypto. Uh, where you've got incredibly volatile assets, incredibly runnable liabilities, all in the same place under a lax regulatory regime. And that's bad. Uh, at the opposite of the spectrum, you can look at things like the Special Purpose Charter in Wyoming, where it's not trying to be all things to all people. Uh, it is not, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, but it is not a bank charter in the conventional sense of the term. Uh, the limits on the range of activities uh, that can be uh, uh, sort of undertaken under the rubric of that charter is fairly limited um, and limited because of the purpose uh, that was uh, that Caitlin was referring to before uh, as a custodian bank for a particular type of asset with a particular settlement profile. And I was so glad uh, that Caitlin sort of framed it as a, a settlement risk discussion. I always feel happy about this um, uh, as a payments guy. Uh, and so you got to look at each charter individually. You got to look at what it's trying to do, uh, the risk that uh, the business models uh, ultimately pose, and then whether the regulatory system actually reflects those business model specific uh, risks. And I agree that the, the, the recent Gorton and Jang paper, sort of its fundamental flaw is that 
uh, it treats an industry as being homogeneous in a way that it just fundamentally isn't. Uh, and I know you didn't ask this, Chris, but I have to then finish off by just saying, uh, this was my fundamental problem with the OCC's proposed FinTech charter, is that I had no idea what it was. Uh, and I don't think the OCC did either. They wanted to have a one-size-fits-all label and then not to make clear how it was going to make decisions about which bits of the bank charter it was going to bolt on as privileges and obligations under that, which to my mind made it very difficult as somebody who makes his bones uh, trying to figure out whether particular business models map onto certain regulatory regimes. And you can't tell me what the business models are that you're trying to attract or how you're going to apply the rules to those business models. Caitlin, you've seen regulators around the world, including the United States, grappling with the very roadmap Dan's providing us here. Uh, circling back to your basic lines of demarcation concerning banking and bank actors, is there anything you'd like to see uh, specifically in the chartering process? Well, uh, the amount of time and complexity and money that it takes uh, is, is, is a function of what you want to do. The easiest one is if we think back to that hierarchy, you know, at the base of the hierarchy, the easiest ones to get, uh, as Dan said, um, in some states, it's a shockingly small amount of money um, is, is the money, serv- uh, money transmitter license. Then the next level up is a trust company. And then the next level up is a bank. Um, and there are shades in different states, as we alluded to, right? You have a depository trust company in some states. That, you know, they're, they're hybrids. But basically, everything falls into that, those three categories. And as you go up that, that, that um, hierarchy, you're getting into much more time, much more cost, much more supervision, um, um, much closer supervision. Um, one of the things in crypto that's true is that um, there are enormous businesses that have been built on um, on money services licenses. I'm sorry, money transmitter licenses and trust company licenses for companies that have never been examined. So um, that is the sort of thing that makes the national regulators uncomfortable, and um, it's a reality. It, um, they tried to rely on the banks who bank those. Remember, if you're a money transmitter or a trust company, you need to bank with a bank um, uh, because that only a bank can can bank with the Fed, and only specifically a depository institution can bank with the Fed, right? And so they they rely on the banks to basically police some of these things where the regulations have um, are are lax in certain areas, but it's pretty clear that there's a big distinction. And what's also happened, because this is a broader uh, discussion that applies more than just to crypto, to all fintechs, what's also happened in the last couple of years is there's something called transaction splitting that has taken place where unlicensed fintechs, they all the fintechs don't want to have to be licensed, right? It means regulation. So they want to be able to say, well, we're just a tech company. We're just providing software. We're not actually touching customer assets. Um, And so what happens is they rent the licenses of a licensed entity. And so what you have, if you think back to that hierarchy of the money transmitters, the trust companies, and then the banks, what you have down below actually is in the basement is the unregulated ones that are trying to rent the license of one that is regulated by splitting the transaction so that the licensed company is the one that handles the asset on the part of their consumer. There's a lot of regulatory arbitrage and a lot of regressive um, regulatory structures that are being applied in fintech generally. Um, and and there are, as you know very well, there are factions within the DC policymaking community that are appalled by all that and want it all inside banks 
But to um, bring it all back to the question uh, that you asked in the beginning, it's really tough to get a bank charter. They've designed it to make it very, very, very difficult and expensive to get a bank charter. We had no new banks chartered in the United States for the decade after the financial crisis of 2008. And it's starting, but we've lost a lot more banks in this country through mergers and acquisitions than we've added through new de novo charters because it's too darn hard. And so um, that faction historically has lost. And that's why so much of this activity is happening outside of the banking system in these loosely, um, or in some cases, unregulated entities. Um, Meanwhile, look at the risks that that build up in in the financial system. The Fed typically is the one who ultimately ends up holding the bag for that as the the lender of last resort. Um, And uh, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, we saw with the non-bank securities firms in the 2008 financial crisis um, uh, that the Fed ultimately ended up letting them in as banks under duress. Is that same thing going to repeat here again, where a lot of non-tech, a lot of non-bank fintechs end up needing to be bailed out because they became systemically important? And I'll end on this factoid. Um, That whole debate I just described over whether non-bank fintechs should get bank charters um, was centered around the large fintechs like PayPal. Do you realize that the stablecoin industry is now three times the size of PayPal? And in just the last six months, it has added two PayPal's worth in size. That puts it into perspective why this debate may finally be coming into a, coming to a head. Caitlin, I wouldn't be at all surprised if you're right, and the issue will certainly uh, continue to be an area of interest for this podcast. Truly eye-opening numbers and a worthy finale for uh, this discussion. Thanks so much to you and to Dan and Michelle. Thanks to you all for helping us out on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be back. Really appreciate it. Thanks as always, Chris. Listening to Dan, Caitlin, and Michelle, it becomes pretty clear that the challenge of defining what is banking derives at least in part from the challenges of understanding the technology used to support it. Indeed, even though the varying functions of banking are being broken down and decomposed for a digital economy, the new layers of technology being devised to enable digital transformation can, in some instances, introduce new kinds of use cases and risks. Now, this in turn presents enormous risks and opportunities for policymakers, especially where they seek to not only enable new kinds of transactions and services, but to also bring them into the existing regulatory perimeter. Now, whether they get the mix right will be anyone's guess, but it's all but certain that regulators, federal and state, will be reaching different conclusions about what's right and even safe, which will make banking one of the most interesting sectors to watch in the years ahead, regardless as to just what kind of entity is ultimately doing it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C H R I S B R U M M E R D R. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>